Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this day that, uh, that you've blessed, Lord, this day that, um, that we have to come together as a corporate, corporate body of believers and worship you in spirit and in truth. And Lord, um, and God, I thank you for moms, Lord. Um, I, I, I thank you for how crucial their role is in advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we are um, a part of reaching every tribe, every tongue, every nation, Lord, is administering the gospel in the home. And uh, these moms do that week in and week out, Lord. And so I give you the praise and the glory for that, God. And Lord, I thank you that we can come and open your word freely, Lord, and see what it has to say and glorify you and be changed by it. And so, God, I pray that you would give us humble hearts, that your Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, Lord, that, God, you would help me to be clear in the way that I preach this morning. And, uh, and Lord, we also pray for Pastor David as he and his family um, mourn the death of his dad, God. I know he, he preached the sermon, uh, his dad's funeral yesterday, God, and I, I praise you just for what you did in and through him there, God. Uh, and Lord, we thank you that as Christians, we grieve differently, Lord. We thank you that his dad was in Christ, that he left this legacy of faith, Lord. His mom left this legacy of faith. And, and, uh, and Lord, we get to benefit from their investment in Pastor David's life uh, week in and week out as he ministers faithfully here. So thank you again for this day. Be with us as we look at your word. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. There may be a typo in your handout. I think it may say Ephesians 4. Um, but we are not there. We are going to be in Philippians 4, and this is week three uh, in our series on Christian emotions. And so uh, what we are going to look at and kind of think biblically about this morning is, is the emotion or the, the feeling of joy. Uh, Webster's definition of joy is this. It's the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. I like John Piper's definition of joy a bit better. He says this, he says, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the Word and in the world. And then another commentator uh, gives this definition of, of specifically Christian joy. He says, Christian joy is the characteristic of the soul that lives in communion with God and the soul that unconsciously will persuade others to taste and see that the Lord is good and that blessed is the man that trusts in the Lord. So today we're going to examine joy as the Apostle Paul sees it in the book of Philippians. And what I've tried to do is craft, and I'll give it to you in just a minute, but craft a Philippian definition of joy. And as I was preparing for the sermon this morning, uh, I began to think the wheels kind of started spinning. We could really craft uh, a definition of Christian joy um, based on every book of the Bible and kind of come away with 66 just definitions of, of Christian joy. And, it, and only then would we even begin to, to scratch the surface on, uh, 
on joy the way that the, the, the Bible defines it. But, but this morning, Philippians is going to have to do. Uh, Paul, uh, he, he, he wrote this letter to the Philippian church while he was imprisoned in Rome. And uh, it was probably toward the end of his imprisonment. And a, a major theme of this book, really, um, and, and many of you, your minds are probably already there. When you think of the word joy, you probably think about the book of Philippians if you've uh, been in church life for any length of time. And, uh, but what is crucial for us to know is that joy isn't isolated. Christian joy isn't isolated. Joy, it, it, Christian joy can't exist in isolation. Did you guys move this thing back? I'm going to fall back in a minute all over this stuff behind me. I'm going to put it right here. I kept backing up and I kept feeling like th- at some point I'm just going to topple over. But Christian joy, it can't exist uh, in isolation. It has to be fixed to something. It needs to endure with something in order to be distinctively Christian, and and that's what we're going to examine together this morning. And uh, before we dive into Philippians chapter 4, let me give you just a little bit of context to this book that I think will help just support our passage before we dive into it. Uh, If you were to read chapter 1 of the book of Philippians, we would see that Paul, um, in speaking of his joy, he remembers the, the church of Philippi and his prayers. He ponders about their growth of Christ, and and that for him uh, causes him to rejoice. We kind of sang about rejoicing in the Lord, and we'll get to that text in just a minute. But we see Paul in chapter one, he rejoices despite his imprisonment because his imprisonment has served to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see Paul rejoice in the thought of dying because he knows that death would mean that he would be reunited with Christ Jesus, who's seated at the right hand of the Father. And then we flip over to chapter 2, and in chapter 2, we get this insider's look at how Paul could, could think the way that he thinks. It's, it's because in chapter 2, we see that the Apostle Paul follows the example of Jesus Christ. Paul has, he has the mind of Christ. It was Christ's joy to humble himself. It was Christ's joy to to bear the weight of our sin. It was Christ's joy to to die on the cross, to be buried and to be gloriously resurrected. It was Christ's joy to suffer so that his elect could be reconciled to God. So for Paul to suffer meant that Paul had the opportunity to identify with his Savior and that produced joy in his life. And then we flip over to chapter 3, and we see that Paul encourages the church to, to persevere in the faith and to be cautious of, of false teachers and wolves in sheep's clothing. And he reminds uh, the church of Philippi that these wolves, uh, they won't persevere because their God is their belly, is the language that he uses. And Paul then encourages the church by saying that he counts everything as rubbish, when it's compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. And then he concludes by telling the church of Philippi to to strain their focus on Jesus Christ, even in the midst of affliction, even in the midst of want. And so those are kind of the three chapters leading us to the the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at. And so let me read chapter 4 to you in its entirety. And then uh, we'll, we'll kind of give a, a Philippian definition of joy, and then we're just going to concentrate on verses 4 through 9 together. And so Philippians chapter 4, starting with verse 1, 
the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says this, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Sintichi to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Okay, so there's some sort of personality conflict going on between these two women, and it seems that Paul may be telling the pastor here to, to help them to agree in the Lord. And we get to verse 4 here, and he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Not hit baseballs, not be a great athlete, but he, he can suffer well, Right? We hear that passage out of context all the time. Verse 14, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for any needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Ephroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Okay, so Paul, in the midst of, of being afflicted and persecuted and imprisoned, he ends up writing this letter to the Christians that are in Philippi and that are also at that time um, dealing with conflict inside the local church and dealing with persecution uh, and pressures that are being placed on them from outside of the church as well. And his aim is to encourage them toward unity, encourage them toward being like-minded in Christ for the advancement of the gospel, but overall to find their joy in the Lord and allow their joy in the Lord to fuel their perseverance in the faith, no matter what comes their way. And so I want to look specifically at verses uh, four through nine, and hopefully we'll see some just concrete um, action steps, if you will, that can prop up um, this charge that the Apostle Paul gives. Um, but before we do that, let me give you this Philippian definition of joy if you're taking notes. Here it is. Christian joy is a worshipful, holy response in the soul gifted to us by the Holy Spirit 
grounded in Scripture, rightly divided, and focused on the glory of the triune God, the progress of the gospel, fellowship in the faith, and contentment in all circumstances. I'll say that one more time. Christian joy is a worshipful, holy response in the soul, gifted to us by the Holy Spirit, grounded in the Scripture, rightly divided, and focused on the glory of the triune God, the progress of the gospel, fellowship of the faith, and contentment in all circumstances. So that's kind of the, 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 the definition of Christian joy that, that I see if we were to look at the book of Philippians in its entirety. And certainly we could, um, we could modify it and, and tweak it as well, um, but this is kind of what I ended up landing on. So if you're taking notes, the first thing that we want to see is that joy is the right response to affliction. Joy is the right response to affliction. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. We just sang that just a few minutes ago, didn't we? And, and this is perhaps a defining characteristic, if you will, uh, and, and even defining difference between Christians that face adversity and the rest of the world right? Non-believers who face adversity. When the pressure's on, when we suffer, we as Christians, we, we can suffer with the joy of the Lord. We can suffer well. We can endure well because Christ suffered. Christ endured well. The author of Hebrews even charges the, uh, the Hebraic church that's suffering immense persecution. He props up Christ and says, let us bear the reproach. Let us also go outside the camp and let us also bear the reproach that Christ Jesus endured. And what the author of Hebrews is telling the suffering, persecuted, afflicted church is that they can suffer and endure because Christ suffered and endured. And the same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives inside of those of us who are in Christ. And so in the midst of affliction, joy is the right response. And, and, um, and again, Jesus is a great template for this. Paul in chapter 2 of Philippians, verses 5 through 11, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right? Paul tells us that this mindset, this mind of Christ, is something that Christians already possess. We already, we already have this. We already have the mind of Christ. We don't have to figure out how to get it. Right? Those who are in Christ have the capacity to have the mind of Christ. Right? Christ, he, he lived in the shadow of our sins for his entire earthly ministry through his incarnation. He took our sins upon himself, and in his humanity, he experienced suffering and pain and loss and hunger and weariness and fatigue and sleeplessness and agony, even more so than any of us 
will ever experience. And as he willingly experienced these things, he did so with this God-centered perspective, right? He did so with this God-centered perspective. He suffered in a way that magnified the glory of God. He suffered in a way that, that, that magnified the glory of God, and he suffered in a way that promoted, that advanced this ministry of reconciliation that he initiated when he came to this earth in the incarnation and that he left us with. We're, we're called to this ministry of reconciliation, this heralding of the gospel. And Christ suffered in a way that promoted that ministry, and we can do the same. Now, now, what are we practically saying when joy is our response to affliction? I want to give you a, a few things that we're practically saying when we respond to affliction with joy. First is this. We're saying that our joy isn't based on our circumstances or on material things, but on the unchanging, immovable character of God, Right? It's not based on circumstances, but based on the unchanging, immovable character of God. We're also saying that, that everything that happens to us has passed through the hands of our sovereign king. Third, we're saying that God is using our circumstances for his glory and ultimately for our good, even if we don't see it in the midst of the affliction, right? He's conforming us, Romans 8, 29 stuff. He's conforming us more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Fourth, we're communicating that we have a grateful heart toward the Lord, even if we experience, all we ever experience is affliction, right? God has graciously saved us from the penalty of our sin. And if we never experience another blessing here on this earth, that's enough, isn't it? It's enough. Fourth, we're communicating that we're more concerned with reverent worship in our witness than to earthly creature comforts. That we're more concerned with reverent worship in our witness to others than, than this earthly creature comfort. So coastal, those, those of you that are in Christ, this mindset is yours. It's yours in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good news? That's really, really, really good news. And that, that's Paul's aim and his encouragement to the Philippian church here when he says, rejoice in the Lord. Have the mind of Christ. Respond to affliction with joy. Secondly, if you're taking notes, a joyful person is clear-headed, patient, and aware of God's presence. A joyful person is clear-headed, patient, and aware of God's presence. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Listen, there's logic to our joy. There's logic to our joy, and it's not the logic of the world, right? The, this joyful mindset that we have in Christ Jesus, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. That's Romans 1 type stuff. People are going to look and say, you should be freaking out right now, right? It's not logic to the world, but it is logical 
it is logical, right? Christian joy is, is extremely, an extremely logical response considering everything that God has accomplished for us in Christ Jesus that's been applied to us by the Holy Spirit, right? A, a, a clear-headed person considers the vulgarity of his or her sin, Right, I think of um, if you were to do a reading of First and Second Timothy, right? First and Second Timothy, they're like the last words of the Apostle Paul. If you want to read the last words, if you want to know what was on Paul's mind before he was executed, read First and Second Timothy. And and at the end of Paul's life, if you were to look in First Timothy, you're going to come across. Uh, this, this statement that the Apostle Paul makes to Timothy, this, this, this young pastor that he's mentored and trained and, and put at this post, this local church called Ephesus. And he tells Timothy this. He, he tells Timothy that he's the chief of sinners. He tells Timothy, I'm the worst sinner that's ever lived. Right? So, so on our worst days, right? On our worst days, we're the second worst sinner that's ever lived, according, according to Scripture. It should cheer you up a little bit. If, if God saved the worst sinner, right, how much more can he save the rest of us? And so as we think about the vulgarity of our sin, we should rejoice in how far-reaching the gospel is. Right? And so, so it, it, it's clear-headed, right? We need to adopt Paul's perspective. Joy is the logical response of someone who knows the thoroughness of their corruption, of their sinfulness, and how far-reaching the gospel is, how much better uh, and how much more powerful um, Christ is over our sin, right? He took our sin into the grave. He put it away. He said it's finished. And that should, that should cause us to, to to, to respond in joy because this wasn't anything that was in us, right? This was because of, of the kindness of God, the generosity of God, His grace, His mercy, and it, His choice of us despite ourselves is grounded in His unchanging character. It's a gift. So joy is the only logical response to, to a gift of this ma- magnitude. So joy is clear-headed, but joy is also patient, it's patient. Romans 8, 18 through 19. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Right? The joyful person is patient because she or he is focused on the day when God in Christ takes everything that's wrong with the world and makes it right. Don't you long for that day this morning, believer? You long for the day that you're rid of sickness and sorrow and suffering and sin and you're able to worship the Lord. This morning, we're worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth and we're bringing all of that stuff with us. One day in the new heavens and the new earth, we're gonna worship the Lord without any of that stuff to hinder us. Could you imagine? Could you imagine hearing the preaching of the word of God even in in, in the new heavens and the new earth? and you don't have to strain to pay attention, right? You're not foggy-minded, you're not tired, you're not sleepy, you're totally engaged, and you join along with the seraphim and the cherubim and the, the elders saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I long for that day. So we wait with this eager longing, knowing that, that our sufferings, according to the Apostle Paul, are light, momentary 
afflictions when compared to the glorious inheritance that's preserved for us by the Holy Spirit. So joy is clear-headed and patient, but the joyful person is also keenly aware of God's presence. Joyful person is aware of God's presence. Psalm 139, I love this psalm. Uh, The first 16 verses here, I'll read you some of them. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, you know when I rise up, You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, before, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I can't attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed and shield, and death, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were not a them. The joyful person is aware, aware of how intimately and intricately God is involved in their lives. He isn't, he isn't the God of the deists, right? He didn't just set the world in motion and say, let's see how this plays out, right? God is near to us. He's not frantically watching over us, uh, hoping that we, we make these right decisions because he wants everything to work out. God is near. He's present. There's no place in all of creation where he's absent. He knows when we rise up, when we lie down. He knows the words on our tongues. He knows all of our ways. He's before us. He's behind us. He's present with us in the womb, knitting us together. He's present with us in death. And that's comfort to the joyful believer. So we see that joy is the response of affliction. Joy is clear-headed and patient and aware of God's presence. And then third, a joyful person understands that prayer, dependency on God and thanksgiving is a remedy for anxiety. A joyful person understands that prayer, dependency on God and thanksgiving is a remedy for anxiety. Verse six, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving... Let your request be made known to God. Right, this is one of the, the many reasons why the word of God must be inspired by God because only the Lord would give prayer and dependency and thanksgiving as coping mechanisms for anxiety, right? right the, the joyful person recognizes that even his anxieties are doing something. God's using anxieties to draw us closer to him. And, and that's a growth point for me because I wrestle with anxiety. That's, that's just something that's, that's is typically pretty present in my own life. And, and I want to be a man that's, that's in this consistent posture of prayer. I want to be a man who, who, who step by step is walking in the strength and the power of the Spirit. 
suffering. I want to be a man who confronts anxiety with thanksgiving. I, I want God-centered coping mechanisms. And, and I pray that for you. Because we're, we're such a prideful people that without thorns in the flesh, like anxiety, we, we may fail to remember that we need the Lord, right? We may fail to remember that, that it's in God that we live and we move and we have our being. It was Solomon <clears throat> that asked the Lord two things. Proverbs 30 says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who's the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. My wife used to keep that posted in all of our uh, vehicles. And I, I love that. That, that request, that, that petition that, that Solomon makes to the Lord. He knew that, that, that if he were to have riches, the surplus, right? He knew, he knew the plague of his own heart well enough to know that he would begin to believe this delusion that he's some kind of self-made powerful man. And Solomon was what? He was the wisest man. He was super duper rich, right? So if anybody understood the dangers of, of health and wealth, uh, certainly it was Solomon. But he understood that riches brought with it the temptation to forget God, and a glorified body too soon would produce temptations in us to forget God. So Solomon asked for his daily portion, right? If you're suffering this morning, be comforted. God's using affliction in your life for a purpose. And that purpose is that, that we would draw close to the Lord. He's, he's using our affliction, if you will, as, as bumper rails, right? The bumper rails of, of running in, in this side of the gutter thinking that we're self-made or this side of the gutter if we despair too much, right? Too much poverty could, could, could cause us to despair. And so the Lord is, is using these, these bumper guards so that we keep plodding toward him and relying on the strength of his might. Fourth, the peace of God guards the heart and, and I put mind, I don't know if I have that in your notes, but the heart and mind of the joyful person. The peace of God guards the heart and the mind of the joyful person. Right? The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Right? Joyful people have the peace of God and the peace of God is like a, it's like a fortress. The prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17, verses seven through eight, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, who trusts is the Lord. He's planted like a he is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it doesn't cease to bear fruit. All right, heat and drought. Many of us can identify with heat and drought, can't we? It gets hot here in the summers. I'm from South Georgia. It gets it's just hot there. Hot and mosquitoes. Should go visit. The um <laughs> Heat and drought, right? Heat, heat zaps our energy, right? It's blistering. It can be painful. It makes us thirsty. And, and what if we can't find water where we are, right? What if there's, what if there's a drought? Even in the midst of a severe drought, even in the midst of immense heat, the joyful Christian flourishes 
because he finds his shade and his water outside of the context of where he lives. Does that make sense? The, the joyful person finds shade and water outside of the context where he lives. He finds it where the Lord dwells. Right? Where the Lord dwells, there's no drought. There's no heat. There's, there's only spiritual flourishing. And this type of flourishing, it guards our hearts and it guards our minds in the midst of severe afflictions. Right? I've, I've sat with Christians who've lost loved ones too soon. Right? I, I, I've sat with Christians with debilitating diseases. I've sat with Christians dying of cancer and their interior lives were flourishing. They were flourishing. And it was because their minds and their hearts were guarded in Christ Jesus. Right? The hurt's real, the suffering's real, the loss is real, and all of this is wicked and all of this is broken, but their joy in the steadfast love of the Lord is very real and very present. So the joyful person, man, the joyful person flees to God, finds his refuge in the Lord. And then lastly, the joyful person meditates. The joyful person meditates. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. All right, can I sum this up for you? It's Jesus. All right, it's Jesus. If we were to say it in a word, it's Jesus. Jesus is true. Jesus is honorable. Jesus is just. Jesus is pure. Jesus is lovely. Jesus is commendable. Jesus is excellent. Jesus is worthy of praise. Think on Jesus. Feast on Jesus. And the God of peace will be with you. I want to close with just a few ways that, that we can do this, that we can increase our, our Christian joy. First, if you're not a Christian this morning, right, what are you waiting on? What are you waiting on? Right, today is the day of salvation. Put, repent of your sin. Put your faith and your trust in Christ Jesus alone. Don't wait any longer. Don't live, don't live this joyless life and then die and spend an eternity in hell. Don't do that. If you're a Christian, make confession and repentance of sin and trusting in Christ. Make that a daily routine. If I were to give you this action step, make confession of sin, repentance of sin, and trusting in Christ Jesus. Make that a daily routine, a daily pattern. Another pattern I would encourage you to do to increase your joy is get up early or stay up late so that you can spend uninterrupted time in Bible reading and in prayer. I promise you, if you want to see your joy increased in the Lord, that is a means of grace that God has provided by which we can commune with Him and have our thoughts lifted toward Christ who's at the right hand of the Father. Next, be others-focused be others-focused. Seek to have your joy increased by serving other people. Pray for other people. Be hospitable. Sit and weep with people. Share the gospel with people. 
And then finally, ask for prayer. You should ask for prayer. Prayer really is tangible. I know at times to us it doesn't seem like it's a very tangible thing, but it is a very tangible thing to make your request known to the Lord and to make the request of others known to the Lord. So ask for prayer. C.S. Lewis wrote, If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to get joy, peace, eternal life, you must get close to the thing that has them. Christ has them. So let's, let's seek as a corporate body to get close to Christ together. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, God. Thank you for the joy that only you can offer. And God, I just pray for my brothers and sisters here. God, I pray for myself, Lord, that you would increase our joy, that you would continue to set our affections on you, Lord. God, I pray that your word would navigate our thinking. And God, lift our contentment, our joy above our circumstances. Lift it on you. And I pray all this in Jesus' name.